The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to tonight's launch of Valerie Mulvin's new book, Approximate Mor uh, Formality, Morphology of Irish Towns. My name is Kieran O'Neill. I'm Deputy Director of Trinity Longroom Hub. That's Trinity's flagship arts and humanities research institute. You're all very welcome here tonight. The urban history of Ireland is, as any urban planner or historian can tell you, underdeveloped. The received wisdom is that Irish society is bad at planning towns and even worse at maintaining them. Valerie's book upends all of our received wisdom by presenting Irish urban development as the product first of geography and then of time, an accretion of what she calls ambition, development and decay, and one in conversation with processes of colonization locally and globally. This, Valerie tells us, will be done with an architect's eye, not an academic's. The perception the plan and the appreciation of spare beauty are the things that her book focuses on. And what is, what is of a special interest to us here at Trinity Longroom Hub is that this particular architect's eye is, of course, the one that shapes our daily praxis as researchers in the hub itself. Valerie designed Trinity Longroom Hub. The plan, the logic and the functionality of this space are all connected to her unique vision, informed by histories as well as relationalities as well as her ability to listen and to collaborate. I came to Trinity in 2011, and thus I remember the aftershock of, um, of the, the building arriving, a brand new state-of-the-art humanities research center designed with a nod to circulation and flow of ideas and of people, a space designed to combine ideas, to collaborate in small groups, to establish intimacy as well as nurture ideas that could grow and flourish and when the time was right be released into the world. It took us years of work at Trinity to begin to realize the, the potential that Valerie had envisioned and it really is a sort of magic I think that ability she has to root a concept in the past, deliver it to a brief, build in room for it to evolve and grow in new directions in the future. It's a sort of institutional tutorship, as well as a reminder of why buildings matter so much. One of the remarkable aspects of the pandemic period now drawing to a close is that we have watched these collaborative structures Valerie designed expand into this virtual realm. Our collaborative praxis was defined by space and it has now become a system, one that doesn't even depend on the building anymore for its existence. So for tonight's book launch, we have three speakers. I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will appear. Our first speaker will be our new professor, Linda Doyle. Linda is professor of engineering and the arts, and her work has mostly been in the fields of wireless communication and creative arts practices. And thus it's interdisciplinary in a way that many of us aspire to, but few, relatively few of us ever actually achieve. Something which found full expression in Connect, a renowned SFI research center that she founded in 2015. Linda will launch the book for about 10 minutes before handing over to the author, Valerie Mulvin. Valerie, of course, is a graduate of both TCD and UCD, recently elected a member of AS Donna She's a founding director of McCullough Mulvin Architects, a globally renowned architectural practice based just around the corner from us in Molesworth Street. The focus of Valerie's practice is on the design of sustainable cultural, educational and civic buildings with a dynamic energy of interest in innovative contemporary architecture, place and history. We have been lucky at Trinity to have benefited from that practice on several occasions during her glittering career. Valerie will give us a brief overview of her book for about 10 minutes before being led in the Q&A by our final guest, Helen Meany, 
Helen is a culture writer and an arts consultant. She has been literature advisor to the Arts Council, curator of the Arts Council Critical Voices Programme, editor of the Irish Theatre magazine, and an arts journalist and commissioning arts editor with the Irish Times. After about 10, 12 minutes or so uh, of Helen leading Valerie in a probing Q&A, our audience tonight, which I'm happy to say is a very large one, will then have a chance to ask Valerie about the book in the remaining 10 or 15 minutes. Just for housekeeping, this event is being streamed live on Facebook and thus will be recorded. If audiences would like, the audience members would like to ask a question and we very much encourage you to do so, please do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. As with everything in the hub, we want our audience to participate and to be involved. So please do interact with us during the event. And now over to you, Professor Doyle. Thanks, Kieran. Um, I'm absolutely delighted and honored to be here this evening and to be part of Valerie's book launch. Um, and thank you for your kind introduction. Um, I'd like to say at the outset, I'm not sure I have the background to do the book full justice, but I nonetheless am thrilled to be here. And can I start by saying, if I were to pick one word that described Valerie, it would be passionate. Um, I think Kieran, you already highlighted how passionate she is about our work. And had we not been in this pandemic, we'd all be now in the Trinity Longham Hub and surrounded by physical evidence of that passion. Um, I myself know Valerie um, from her time on the board of the Douglas Hyde Gallery, and she's also hugely passionate about contemporary art. Um, she was such a great and generous member of the board, and that passion came through in her commitment to the gallery. And I see her passion again here most brightly in the writing of this book, a book which I believe has a fantastic name, Approximate Formality, Morphology, Morphology of Irish Towns. This passion began, as Valerie tells us in the book, when she started researching Irish towns in the early 1990s for an MLIT thesis here in Trinity. Um, and as, as she pointed out herself, uh, her professional life as an architect intervened, but that passion brought her back to the topic, drove the huge and very impressive amount of research involved and resulted in this wonderful book. So as you know already, Approximate Formality focuses on towns dating from earliest times to around the end of the 19th century. And as Kieran pointed out, and what stands out for me as well, and as Valerie talks about, it's very much the architect's view. And she said um, uh, that her comments are very much, and Kieran, I was interested that you picked up in this phrase as well, about perception, the plan, and an appreciation of spare beauty. And I think actually they're beautiful words, and those kinds of beautiful phrases are plentiful in the book and really invite you in. And what Valerie does in the book is look at the shapes, patterns, and typologies of Irish towns in different eras. She does this through a methodology, uh, and even though she doesn't describe her as an academic, I think a lot of this is very academic, about drawing on, you know, that is about drawing on early ordnance survey maps. She uses many photographic collections, particularly the National Library's Lawrence collection. Contemporary historic maps, which I like the way she points out, are always political, but not always reliable. She uses aerial photographs from the Morgan collection um, of images commissioned by the Irish independent newspaper in, in the 1950s, as well as 1930s aerial photographs taken by English aviators in advance of wartime maneuvers, and aerial photographs of the earliest towns taken by Leo Swan. So it's really fantastic range of material that's drawn on for the book. And on top of all of that, it's supplemented by huge numbers of visits to many of those towns by Valerie herself. Um, so as you can imagine, there is an enormous amount of research that in underpins this book. And I just think I stand back and look in awe at all of that. What results is a wonderful and fascinating read with huge insights and lots to learn. Um, the book is laid out under four main headings linked to different eras of development of the towns. And I really can't do just, justice to this. And I know Valerie is going to elaborate further, but I just want to touch on those briefly. So actually one thing that I did do, uh, and maybe uh, this is very engineering of me, I created what I think is an abstract image of Valerie's book. And I just want to show you all this uh, for a second. So just bear with me while I do a quick screen share. Um, so I don't know whether people can see this, 
But this, this is my abstract image of Valerie's book, right? And I'm gonna go back to what this means in a minute. So I'll just give you a sense to look at it. And you think you might be looking at this and thinking, what this, what is this about? So I'm just gonna go back and do a stopping of the screen share. So the book is laid out under four main headings linked to different eras, as I said. And the first of these four chapters focuses on Celtic and Viking. And Valerie points out here that early Christian and Viking towns had an overlapping existence. The circles and angles of their respective plan forms, forms representing alternative worldviews. And the circle is a big focus of these settlements and towns, and she elaborates in detail about many of the ideas behind this. The second of these four chapters focuses on the medieval. In Europe, the early medieval centuries marked the beginning of a period of expansion. This was a period of Norman movement into Ireland. And as Valerie points out, within 50 years, a country without many towns was sown through with new urbanity, a huge enterprise full of energy and planning and passionate investment, as she says. And here we hear about linear and grid plans. The chapter is full of those poetic sentences that I mentioned earlier that I invite you to read further. One that really stood out for me was the feudal system has its own architecture, mathematics crossed with a family tree. Urban structures cannot be understood without recourse to its beautiful logic. So these are the kind of things that invite you in. The chapter that follows is entitled The Renaissance and focuses on early modern urban settlement. Um, there's much here about the influence of plantations. We move to understanding topologies based on triangles and diamonds, as well as squares, grids and axes. And then the final chapter is called Landlord. And in fact, actually, I love the names of the chapters. I don't think they're, they're absolutely obvious. They're kind of, they, they, they really do invite you in, as I keep saying, and looks at the landlord towns of the 17th and 18th century. And topologies here broadly follow the plantation models, but Valerie also focuses on the innovation that happened over this period. So what you, what you get is this kind of, I suppose, wonderful understanding of how the towns morphed and the morphology of those through these different eras. And where I got that, that abstract uh, representation I just showed you, uh, and just to go back again, is I, I actually just looked at the words and the use of the words in that, uh, in, 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 in that um, sorry, just one second, I think there's a slight, in, in, in the, can everybody see this? Just me. And, and if you expand it, if you look at words like circle and diamond and axial and church, you begin to see them linking with the different, the Celtic and Viking, different ones with medieval. You see diamonds and triangles coming in with the Renaissance and you see the axial spread through and you see the church dominating and everything. So I think it's an amazing book that allows you to, I suppose, come to it and think through it in different ways, even if you don't start with the architecture perspective yourself or the historian perspective. Um, you know, it's just full of many, many wonderful insights. Um, the book for me is also a beautiful book. Um, because of COVID, I haven't physically touched the book myself yet. I have a PDF uh, version, but the chosen images are simply fantastic. Some of my favourite images are the ones of Armagh, I think it's image 25, and the Donegal town image. Um, the aerial views always reveal something extra. But what they convey to me above everything else is Valerie's passion, excitement and wonderment about these towns. Um, and it's a book that I suppose incorporates all that. I also love the superb attention to detail and maybe this is a strange thing to point out, but Valerie, I love the way you say plans on the same page are all at the same scale and the north points are at the top of the sheets. Maybe that's something architects do, but I just love that. Um, so it's a wonderful book full of incredible observations, insights and based on much, much uh, research and exploration. And I just want to end by quoting something Valerie herself says, and I think uh, Kieran alluded to this. So she says, recently there has been a movement of people out of crowded cities to new lives in the countryside, and particularly to small Irish towns, a natural process which brings huge opportunities at a key moment. The book shows how an understanding of the architecture and urban design of Irish towns might serve to support ways in which they, may, they might be carefully conserved and developed to provide homes for thousands of additional people. So for me, this is an important book in and of itself. 
it matters because it's tracing the morphology, morphology of Irish towns uh, from an architecture's perspective. That's hugely important. That I think was a missed opportunity up to now that you spotted Valerie and, 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 and we, sh we should be so grateful for. But it also matters because it matters for our future and how we live. So it's a fantastic book. I congratulate Valerie on amazing work on complete dedication and on the passion to bring it to fruition. So uh, thank you, Valerie, for giving us uh, such a great work. Okay, that's great. We're just going to pass straight to Valerie for uh, a quick sneak preview of the book. Valerie, over to you. Thank you, and thanks for that very kind introduction, Kieran and, and Linda, those amazing words. And I adore that um, abstract. I think it's absolutely amazing that you've you've managed to find a mathematical uh, parallel, which to me is a really strong kind of thing about the, the rigor that I've tried to apply it over this. Um, I, I also love building the, the, the building, the long room hub, which which um, Kieran is not actually broadcasting from, but which you can imagine we're all in. And I love that I'm now kind of using it for its intended function. Now, as you said, Kieran and Linda, the subject and object of this book is towns and town plans in Ireland, exploring their originality, their potential, and their really rigorous layouts, so they can be understood as part of not just local, but world culture, because I think they're that important. This book for me, is the linking bit of research that connects everything together, which says in the end, there is a tradition of building towns in this country. It's important in the canon of art and architecture. It has a particular spare character, which is totally unique in its level of formality. And that derives from its geography and its history. And it's important for us to use these places now and to take them into the future. I'll show a few slides and Francesca, you're going to kindly put them on. The first slide please um, is of Temple Moor. Uh, can you see that? Sorry, can you can you see the slides? Yes, you can. everything oh, good. good. Okay, good. That's terrific. Um, so I, I, this little piece is just really in three sections to give you just a sense of the scope of the book. And take this photograph at Temple Moor, which is the cover, taken in the 50s. What an extraordinary image this is. And yet we totally take spaces like this for granted from the ground. We haven't negotiated a language to celebrate their formality. When I first began this research, I was really struck by the astonishing uniformity of characters so many towns in Ireland have. They're captured by the First Ordnance Survey maps and the Lawrence Collection of Photographs. And the towns are a kind of gentle algorithm where a small number of rules deliver amazingly different geometric possibilities. And that interested me as an architect. So not only do these two sets of records preserve in aspic an entire vanished society, but they record a fantastic way of inhabiting these wonderful spatial containers. They're full of market carts, fair days, neat summer trees. So that was a great starting point for me for trying to bring to the fore the formality of these planned out entities. So you could set the scene maybe for a new generation of people to inhabit them in new ways. Next slide. Uh, this Lawrence image of Clonmel epitomizes that small town life. And I think I caught the end of this world growing up in Bray in the 1960s visiting churches, shops, and the post office with my mother, the bright proposal of a planned but rackety seaside town of coloured terraces. Later, we spent holidays on Loch Derg near Nina, which was a strong medieval town like Clonmel, though I didn't know it at the time. My parents were friendly with people who had lived all their full and contented lives in beautiful Georgian townhouses on the main street in a social round of visiting, picnics, fishing on the lake, just as their forebears had done. There was a sense of incredible cornucopia on arrival into that sunlit straight street full of shops. And we got to know Scroop's hardware, Gleason's for Brack, Flannery's for drapery, and the cows would come around the friary to Nina Dairy every day. It was all totally memorable to me and little change since Robert French photographed these spaces for William Lawrence. So this street scene played other to the landscape beyond and was sudden, sharp and complete. Next slide. In a way, medieval towns like Clonmel have come through our difficult history the best, the complexity and the layering of the first on the ground. They're the most obviously within the European canon of urbanism, and we have disremembered the Normans and their exclusions. So we look at Barnaby Gosh's drawing of Galway, describing the beautiful formal qualities of that town, walled and gated, a grid of streets dividing to go to the port beside St. Nicholas Church, and outside the walls, fore and aft, the shield and breastplate of the two now vanished abbeys, 
conferring blessings, but also linking natives and invaders under one God. So let me read your quotation from the people of New Ross, which is another a very strong medieval town. Having built the town, they decided to wall it. And I quote, a wall of stone and mortar they would build around the town, for that war was causing them concern. At Candlemas they began. On Monday, the vintners would go from daybreak to the stroke of three. On Sunday, the ladies go to heave the stone and carry it out of the fosse, declaring that they will build a gate. When it's complete, not an Irishman in Ireland will be so bold as to dare attack it. So new people had made a beautiful thing. They'd made a whole grid planned town and they were excited by it and they wanted to preserve their way of life within it in parallel with what was happening all over Europe at the time. Next slide. But those same medieval towns excluded those who had been there before and at best agreed to a market space or a fair green, an Irish town, at the gates. So the faith in Wexford, which is this slide, is a built form of the apartheid, which continued the duality of conversations about towns in Ireland, begun by the Vikings, which, as, as, as Linda was saying, when they fetched up beside the towns, beside the monasteries, there was a, a kind of a synergy between them. Our complex history, particularly during the plantations, makes us maybe a bit ambivalent to towns and what they represent. Um, next slide. This slide of Roscommon describes it. The mark of colonization, the displacement of peoples. In the savagery of our history, what had to be endured became shorn and blunted so deeply that when we could, took control ourselves, the myths of the new state were based on Devalera's cozy homesteads rather than on cities and towns with all their perceived social ills. So we know that the British presence in Ireland required it to denigrate Irish things to justify wholesale land transfer. And that's really been the case since Geraldus Cambrensis, the wild Irish who needed to be civilized and later the moral imperative to improve, scarcely concealing the profit motive. Sir Edmund Spencer, who of course wrote the Fairy Queen, wanted to place, and I quote, English inhabitants of all sorts as merchants, artificers and husbandmen to whom there should charters and franchises be granted, so would it in a short space turn those parts to greater commodity and bring ere long to Her Majesty much profit. For those places are so fit for trade and traffic as I have seen and sampled at Maryborough and Phillipstown. And this all the while, the O'Moores and the O'Connors were being drummed out of their ancestral towers and monasteries so that Phillipstown could be garrisoned. They left a complex, complex and interesting Gaelic world, which is now slowly being recovered from the shadows, a world without formal mapping or many documents or standard measurements, uh, from the Ballybow to the Plantation Acre. What makes Ireland interesting is that there are always two points of view, making all conversations piquant and fascinating. So while, while plantation towns may have been hammered out military statements on the ground, and Roscommon, by the way, was never completed like this, Nicholas Malby, who, who made this map only took on the medieval castle and retuned it to a smart Elizabethan house. But these plantation towns were ambitious. They were grounded in Renaissance thinking about urban space across Europe and the new world. Next slide. With axial relationships, centralized grid plans and triangular spaces are diamonds like this one in Lisburn, making strong places of exchange and meeting in a sometimes wild landscape. Everybody's familiar with the savagery of the plantations and the cruel translation of populations. In a way, we haven't recovered from it. The whole country was, after all, a laboratory for English experimentation on their Irish subjects. Towns are political statements, like the famous image of Derry as a walled grid plan with the cannon in the main square excluding and defending. But the fact was there were never enough transplanted people to totally reimagine the country. So Irish tenants farmed the land, paid rent, and sometimes even occupied the town streets in their own cabins, maintaining that strange apartheid, that, that fractured self that maybe the Vikings began. And then finally, uh, in this last kind of piece about the landlord uh, era, the next slide please, as the warlike 17th century was recast into a more enlightened 18th, it's worth remembering that just in the same way that numbers of planters were never sufficient to completely flood the country and colonize it completely, the next generation of towns were actually built by ordinary Irish people in a grudging symbiotic contrast of, of, of sorts with their landlords. It's a story that's rarely celebrated, but they built all the shops and sheds, all the walls that make these containers of space that we now recognize as towns in Ireland. And that's a, that's a really proud fact. These more peaceable times allowed landlords to make their biggest investment, not their houses in the main, but their towns, their new towns, 
Occasionally very joined up experiments underpinned by brilliant ideas to improve agriculture, industries like linen, and of course, rental income. As formal playthings of a privileged class, their geometric and spatial expression was obviously a springboard for fashionable display. But the architectural design ambition was also clear, singular, and often innovative in terms of European urban design thinking. The Ordnance Survey map here of Stratford on Slaney, once a remarkable flourish in the Wicklow Hills, draws two formal spaces, an oval and a circus, and then makes a cross axial street between a church and a meeting house. And that's all above the manufactory down by the river. Next slide, please. Not all the promoters of new towns were landlords either. Port Law in County Waterford was a more philanthropic enterprise built by the Quaker Malcolmson family for their mill workers with all life radiating out in streets from the factory gates, as you can see in this amazing image. Urban design ideas across Ireland were at European level. Here's a commentary about an innovative landlord, Brockel Newberg, who built Ballyhays County Cabin about 1730. At about a quarter of a mile distant from his house, he built a town in the form of a circus. The houses all arched with a large circular meeting house in the center, a building in the opinion of some good judges, not unworthy of a Vitruvius or a Palladio, and which bears no distant resemblance to the Pantheon at Rome. So that's spectacular ambition, but the circular building and half the space around it are gone, leaving only a sort of squashed pentagon on the drumlands. Next slide. When you go to Mitchellstown, you have in, in County Cork, a wonderful example of a complex set of spaces being achieved in three dimensions, using the rolling topography of the hills to generate visual cross axes and surprising views. It's a bit like the Greek city of Priene. The aerial shot here flattens it a bit too much, but you can appreciate the interlinking spaces the tilted plane of the market square, the sharp geometry of King's Square, the axial relationships with the two churches at right angles across the terrain, one on the upper section and the other across the valley. And then the next and the last final slide, the slide of Westport. This reminds us how tenuous the whole enterprise was and how much a risk these entrepreneur landlords were taking. Look at this shaky street of houses heading down the hill to the first of those amazing terraces with the hubris of the Earl of Altamont on his column, paucity of materials, the already broken down nature of it, it's an absolute miracle of survival from here to possibly being the foremost town of the 18th century in Ireland. So in quick summary, in our towns, the first and most significant quality is their form, the space defined by the wall of buildings that creates it. In Ireland, we've lost a sense of our town's value as bright, brilliant public spaces. We don't believe in them quite, Instead, we suburbanize them, we put in car parks, occasionally there's a monument trapped in the center. So, but people need to understand the idea of a place. So I'm hoping this book might give a context for these great spaces, for the sustainable use for the 21st century and beyond, so people can live well in them again. So new things can happen, which are architecturally appropriate, so the streets can be filled up and upper floors inhabited. It'd be wonderful to provide the thousands of new homes we need right in the middle of these instant environments. But that needs an understanding of what's important so we can conserve it and add to it innovatively. Thank you. Thanks very much, Valerie. And it's great to have been able to give our audience just a, an, an idea of the amazing array of unique uh, imagery that, that accompany uh, this text. So. Um, that really is just such a shining part of the book and it makes it, it, it makes it just uh, the, the superb book it is. Um, I'm going to invite Helen to ask you a series of, of probing questions now for the next few minutes before we uh, hand over to our live audience. Thanks very much, Karen. Um, and Valerie, first of all, congratulations uh, on the book. And it's just a beautiful publication. And I think we've you've just given us a a flavor really of of the insight and on the the depth of research and and the and the the range of material and the richness um, of some of those quotes um, i mean it this this book i was thinking could so easily have been um a a record of of decline um and I, if, you know, if it had been, if you had been published in the latter quarter of the last of the 20th century, it might well have taken that tone, a sort of an elegiac tone. But what's really striking about your work, this book, is the spirit of optimism um, and uh, a, a sort of an, an excitement about the potential um, of these places. So, 
I wanted to ask you about that, that journey that you've made um, in, your, in your research, because it did start a quite a long time ago uh, as your master's thesis. And um, I know it's something you've been thinking about on and off over these years, visiting the towns, as, as Linda said, but also doing so much research into um, primary sources, some of which are published here um, for the very first time. So could you just talk to us a bit about your research process on that journey in your thinking, and maybe some key moments uh, that, were, that were significant and also some of your influences as you went along? Gosh, that's a that's a long question, and and uh, I won't spend too much time on it because we 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 run entirely entirely out of time. But it was fascinating, and and to me, um, part of this, um, besides just going and visiting Irish towns, becoming really excited about the spaces that were there that seemed to be kind of unappreciated, and that quote that I have at the beginning of the book from Kevin Barry, which I might read at the very end, um, which so exemplifies everything that seemed to be about towns in the seventies. Um, in Ireland, that they were miserable places that people just wanted to escape from. Um, and looking at them now, we, we kind of feel about them differently. And some of that is to do with things like broadband and potential, and even the pandemic opening up the possibility of people being able to move away from cities. But I suppose, for me, research, Terry Barry was, was terrific in opening up all kinds of areas of, of, of interest for me, because I was interested in a broad range in, in trying to do a master's in Trinity. And I had to jump between all kinds of different, different departments and speak, spoke to historical geographers, to economists, to historians, to fine art people. And it was a totally brilliant journey, that whole uh, research period um, working on the, on the masters, which, which began to open things up for me. Um, obviously work as an architect, you know, when you're, when you're a student and you, you wander the city and you wander foreign cities and you just get terribly excited about the ideas that, are, that underpin how things work. And I spent a year in Rome trying to study from the Nolly map how Rome was put together and how all of those fantastic places um, it came into being and were even linked by people like Sixtus V and so on. So I was very, very interested, I must say, in, in urbanism generally for a very long time. Um, and what's changed, I suppose, since then, um, people like Braudel, who, who is an extraordinarily important um, French historian from you know, the middle part and the, and the the, the middle part of the 20th century, his view of, of taking the wholeness of things and, and looking at environments was very important to me to try and join things together. Um, but as, as I've come to the last section of this research, which took a huge amount of time, I thought this would take me a few months to kind of put together. Um, and then I realized the enormous amount of research that had been done on this subject since I had, had, had worked on, on, on the masters. And first of all, it was just such in depth passionate study from people who studied individual towns or individual elements within towns like town walls or gates or whatever it might be. Um, and, and that was incredible because a huge amount of information uncovered, sometimes through excavation, sometimes through rescue archeology, span sometimes through complete accidents um, of, of, of just what people discovered through um, the latest technologies in, in surveying. Um, and then on the other side, there were research projects going on, like the Celt project in UCC, which is looking at European libraries and 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 throughout the world. I think uh, wherever there's Irish uh, uh, Irish information that maybe has gone from our information system, but still resides in another European library. So. The interesting thing about that was that it gives you a completely new lens to look at all of this. In other words, um, I, I, I found a, a thing about um, uh, a Viscount Peralos who left Catalonia in about 1379 to come to St. Patrick's Purgatory. And he had all kinds of letters of introduction from various people. But he came totally, um, un, I suppose, influenced by the, 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 the language that we're used to hearing about Ireland from, which is, which is generally an English lens. And his view was entirely uh, open and, and fulsome and, and interesting. And he was interested in going to the end of the world in St. Patrick's Purgatory. But when he came to Drogheda, he immediately compared it to Tarragona and Cuigzerda. And that to me is fascinating because you wouldn't think of that influence back in that direction. And so that kind of contextualizing of issues, uncovering 
European connections began to really interest me as, as, to, as a kind of a springboard for how this book should be thought about um, in terms of this as a piece of really important European urban thinking. And maybe I hadn't thought about it before like that. Mm, yeah, fascinating, yeah. And um, one term you use and that recurs in your writing here is, is this use of the word container. Um, you describe the towns as, as beautiful containers um, and also this idea that the buildings within them are containers, so are vessels, and which has all sorts of implications for reuse or for repurposing or for has a, a notion of flexibility and elasticity. Would you say a little bit more about, about that? It seems to be really central to your thinking. Yeah, I think it is. And actually, I think that's why um, it's important to say that this isn't an academic book. I, I know, Linda, you've been very kind in, in your um, in your in your reading of it, but I'm not an academic and I'm not very good at research, actually. But the fact is that the um, the the idea of containers is a spatial idea, which really comes out of an architectural thinking about urban spaces. In other words, you consider a space as being created by walls and a surface of a floor, sometimes by tram lines to contain a ceiling. But in general, you're talking about a space. So you walk into a space in Italy, in Spain, in wherever, and you're immediately influenced by the containment that those walls give you. So that seemed to me to be a really important um, kind of aspect of how to, how, to, how to think about these spaces, because a lot of them um, in Ireland, we, we, you know, there, there are places in Ireland, particularly in the landlord period, where the, the, the villages are quite small. These towns and villages are quite small in their height. They're maybe two stories high, but immense in extent. So the, the containment is quite shallow. And that gives you the sense that the space in the middle is, is somehow terrifically charged and important. In, in, in bigger spaces, you find the containment is bigger. In a, in a three-story or a four-story or five-story uh, containment, you, you have a much greater sense of the, um, of, of the space itself as being formed by the walls that contain it. And I think that sense of, that, that to me is the most important thing that you can, that you can conserve in these, in these places. And that's why it's so important when people say, oh, we should, we should widen this or we should do that. that that constriction is really the crucial thing that gives people the experience of being in a place and making places is what in the end many many architects we're all working on these ideas now of how to make places how to make emotionally satisfying places for people to enjoy and live their lives in as a background um, so to create as as you said also the spaces within these towns are also vessels or containers for the life that might go on within them. And I suppose what I think is great about that is that it doesn't matter that something used to be a shop. It could now be a house. It could be somebody's front room. It could have a huge plant growing up in the front of what was the sweet shop in the town. And again, you have that lovely engagement of a window onto a street. You have that fantastic relationship between a threshold and people able to just communicate straight outside their door and the amazing sense of community. And yet, I think we've changed our view of community uh, since, you know, we, we, we now have the possibility of escaping from it. I think in the past, there was that awful sense that towns were trapped in themselves. Totally, um, you know, valley of the squinting windows, the, the twitching curtain, all of those senses that you were being you were under observation, you were involved in, in you know, part of your, your history couldn't be escaped, you couldn't invent yourself in a new way. And I think you can do that now because people can be everything to whatever they want to be. Uh, and that's something that we've all learned from the internet. But I think it's, it's, it's useful to have a sort of a, a physical, spatial, three-dimensional thing that contains the space you live in. And I think that's one of the things that I really want people to to take from this, that they would be able to look at a space and say, okay, I can see that the important thing about this is that it's a square or that it's a diamond or that it's a long oblong or that it has something with a little bit of kick out in it. But it's that space that I really would think is the most important thing we can conserve. So that's why I felt it was such a, a crucial concept. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, you, you've gone into thinking about, you know, from the past into, into the future. And, and as you wrote, you know, approaching the, the future of these places with, with originality. Um, and, uh, and that seems to be, I mean, where we are now in Ireland with our, um, with so many, I suppose, complex problems, whether it's, uh, it's housing, it's the future of cities, it's 
inequality, it's obviously the climate change. And I wanted to ask you how, I mean, what are the barriers to that sort of originality? And mm. you know, what can, what is the role of the architect, bigger question, in, in, a, in addressing uh, the attempt to solve some of these complex questions? I think that's a that's hugely important. And, I, and as I said somewhere in, in, in this, I think if we could solve some of these issues, if we could solve them in an original way, that would be our contribution in this century to, to how we might live. And I suppose the first thing to say about sustainability and about climate change and about how we might live lightly on the planet, using things in, in the best way we can, is, is one thing is to say that the, the the most sustainable building you have is probably the one you already have. So forgetting about passive house or all of these other concepts, all of which are terribly important, but to really look at what are we actually, what have we got here and how can we use it? Um, and, you know, people will say, oh yes, but it's much too expensive to conserve things that are, that are already there because you have to bring them up to modern regulations. And yes, of course you have to do certain of those things, but I think you could get bogged down in a kind of a, 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 a rant about you know who who's what are the barriers architects usually end up being the kind of the the jam in the sandwich that has to go around and pull everything together and glue it into a way that makes it work and we often find ourselves and I know I I, I often talk to colleagues on this that we're, we're picking things from various different places and trying to get people to talk together because that's what what generally releases something there are huge um obvious barriers which should be easy to break down and um, you know there are many many government policies and I will you know say unashamedly that those policies are great but there's a lot of thinking that needs to go on to actually embed them and make them work because I, I think that's part of the problem there's lots of talk but it's the action that needs to happen now so what needs to happen I'll be I'll just mention a few of the kind of pragmatic things that need to, to work. Fire officers need to be brought into line so that we're not spending too much money on making places safe. We can make them safe, very, very safe in, in very simple and, and good passive ways. Insurance companies have to be convinced that they don't have to just insure the most boring type of buildings, the most boring way of using buildings. Banks need to be convinced that they can lend to people to use different things. Like why can't people buy a factory that's on the side of a town and, you know, make a great series of spaces within it because it's really difficult to get money to do that. Um, why, you know, it's, it's, that's the kind of starting point. I think that local authorities could be really helpful in pulling those things together. Um, there are fiefdoms within them, which, which mean that lots of things, you know, are happening without it being possible for other people to, to get together. And that's where we try, I suppose, where architects try and you know, talk to traffic people with the with the rest of a design team, and of course, the rest of the design team is also crucial. But I, I suppose it needs a will first of all, and I think it needs to me. It almost needs to be won. It's a battle that needs to be won on a house by house basis. And you could take each town, and you could each local authority could could make a little pilot group of things that could happen in that town. They could take one building a year, or five buildings a year, or one street, you know, and and just get to know exactly everybody in it, who, what, who owns what, what are the difficulties, because leases and land, land ownership is, is, is as ever a perennial problem in Ireland. But there has to be ways around this which can come out of talking and out of will. And I do believe that that's where we, we make a difference. The other thing that architects can do, and I think it's again, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, the, it's the innovation. It's making people see that, that really you can do brilliant things with what's there. You can take out a floor and make a double height space. You can link spaces together horizontally that give you suddenly a much greater freedom to live. You can partition spaces, you can make them temporary, you can do all kinds of amazing things that will allow you to use these spaces in ways that the people who built them would be amazed at and shocked at. Um, and delighted by, I think, in the end. You can bring light in from different places. You can, I, I think that's where all our ingenuity is, is that we can be ingenious with the containers that are there. We can add to them innovatively. We can change the backlands. The plot lines are very interesting, very persistent, but you can build on those and we can make things happen behind. Um, but I think we've just got to find uses and we've got to persuade people to move into them with vim and vigor and, and to be able to uh, borrow the money to properly 
um, manage all the problems that will arise, like fixing the roof or making the windows right. But, you know, it has to be done in a proper way. There's no point in saying, let's take out all the windows and replace them with triple glaze, something that doesn't look right. Or maybe it's right for some new and some old things to happen. I'm passionately convinced that you can add radical new things to existing situations. And, and we spend a lot of time in our office trying to do exactly that. So it's a, it's a full and exciting thing that is ahead of us to do all of this. Yes, oh man, that's, that's a very inspiring uh, answer and a great way to close this, this uh, part of our conversation. So Valerie, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you both. And we have uh, some time for questions. It's not going to be enough time to answer the flood of brilliant questions that have actually come in, which is great. Um, so I'm going to group some of these together uh, because some of them cover the same ground. But I'm going to begin with a question from Graham Hassett, uh, which is really about the moment at which you're writing this book and some of the angles that you've taken with it. So Gronja asks, has the heightened political atmosphere globally in the most recent, in more recent years, altered your readings of Irish towns? As in, you now describe them quite openly as operating within a colonial context of extraction. Perhaps we might not have expressed it in the same way 10 years ago. Valerie, what are your thoughts about that? How much have you been affected by now? I think a lot. I mean, I think anybody who, who works in the field of architecture, of urbanism, in, in all of those fields, we're all tremendously um, interested in what's happening all over the world and what what are the things that are driving people and we see so much inequality as Helen mentioned um, we see places where boundaries become really um, you know sticking points um, I think there's been since since the fall of the of the Iron Curtain and the, the walls that cut Europe apart um, there has been I suppose a huge change in the way that people see things. I mean, when, when I was um, growing up, I used to collect stamps because I never thought I would get to see any of the places that were on these little tiny squares. But they interested me because they were like a little window into the future. And now I think everybody knows they can go anywhere, or at least we did think so until uh, this time last year, um, when things did grind to a halt. But I think I think Ronnie's question is a really interesting one because I think you're you're absolutely right. We do look at things, and everybody is much more willing to acknowledge now that we have a really difficult history, that it is a history that um, that needs to be understood. Now, I mean, I don't think there's any point in waiting around for apologies from anybody. I think we just got to get on with it. Um, I think the, the the interest is in in identifying the different strands and the different motivations that that made people do things. Um, and when and that was one of the things that that I found fascinating about all the research I did on this was that so many things were, um, you know, particularly uh, in the in the late in the latest uh, group of buildings in the whole the whole landlord towns, so much was was to do with people trying to make um, different kind of lives, trying to improve things generally. Yes, they were trying to make money, of course they were, but they were like modern developers, and they they got grants for things, and they they lobbied parliaments, and they lobbied. Um, various institutions to get money to go and do things like set up a fisheries in Rutland Island in Donegal or to you know set up a town somewhere which would have a glassworks in it because everybody knew it was just going to take too long to get glass from wherever it needed to come to so if you had your own glassworks then you know you were home and dry so I think that that the reading of recent political and and economic history really and the movement of people and the, the kind of the sense that people will now um people are now prepared to to get out and, and say what they need to happen and i think it would be uh, to me that's that's interesting in that it, it it gives you an underpinning for being able to describe what's happened in our own history where we should move with it um i i think we shouldn't be in 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 the least um, kind of upset about towns. They're they're there. They're great things. They're wonderful opportunities. Um, we've you know we've we've grown up in them. Sometimes we liked them. Sometimes we hated them when we were growing up. But they were they were whole communities. And I think the 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 great thing that's happened in the last I suppose five ten years is that communities of interest have kind of grown up over various things and have directed debate in a way that almost bypasses. Uh, governments and governments are kind of lagging behind a little bit um, in terms of where they're where they're going. So I don't know whether that answers the question, but um, it's an attempt. 
No, that's great. I mean, I'm a historian, so I, I could keep you in the past for a lot longer than I'm going because we've a lot of future focused questions uh, for, from our audience tonight. So I'm going to group a couple of those together uh, from Mary and John, um, Mary Keller and, and uh, John McLaughlin, uh, which really are about what lessons you think can be drawn from your book and then applied. I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room is COVID and how we have seen a move towards the hinterland of towns from cities. And we know this is happening, but we don't yet understand what it means. And I suppose what Mary is asking in particular is, you know, what lessons can be taken from the book about future town planning, about spatial planning, and the local authorities who oversee it? There are many large towns not yet in existence physically, but in skeletal form, built into national and local development plans. Do those plans need to change? Are those plans fine? What lessons can we, can we glean from your book? Um, I think that um, hopefully what people might feel from the book is that actually solving the local things begins to solve global things. Um, that that you're, you're able to look at, at small things, you can, you can, you can make increments of, of, of tiny things which make a difference. Um, and in terms of plans which exist, I'm sure they, they should be refreshed, they should be looked at very frequently. And the pandemic has really taught us all kinds of values that we had sort of forgotten about. And one of them, I think, is the value of things not having to be enormous, that they can be quite precise and small. Um, I think um, even if you, you, you mentioned the word um, hinterlands of towns in, when, you, when you're asking that question, Kieran. And actually that's interesting because to me, part of the, part of the problem that we have in, in Ireland, and part of the reason I used those so many aerial photographs was that they were taken in the 50s at a time before suburbanization had really blurred the edges. So what, what I think we all probably feel about suburbanization is that we want to recover a sense of place. And recovering a sense of place to me would be hugely enhanced by taking on things like the towns that are already there. Now, a lot of, you, you might say a lot of towns, people are already doing that, and of course they are. And um, some of those are in the most beautiful, attractive places like West Cork or Kerry or, um, beautiful towns that have wonderful geographic um, advantages to them. But there's also lots which are in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they don't have many kind of positive qualities that you can see, except perhaps they just have this strange, you know, amazing quality of just being there. And uh, Ballyhays is an interesting one actually, because half it's gone, but you just see this extraordinary kind of pentagon shape. And you wonder, could somebody think about that again and maybe think about how to complete it? Or could you think about something that added to that in an interesting and innovative way? So I suppose what I'd, what I'd love to think about, uh, or I'd love to think that this book might help people do is to say, actually, there's a huge amount of stuff here, which is just about taking small things and looking at them closely and, um, and trying to define what their essential characteristics are and saying, you know, what's, what's the precious, I suppose, thing to, I'm just looking at the front cover here of the book, which um, is, is in the shops and so on right now. But it's, it's that image of that central space, that space in Temple Moor, um, which just, you look at it and you say, there's hundreds of places that people could live there. Um, you could have all kinds of plans for out beyond it. And each of those, I think, should not compete too much with it. So I think it's a matter of balance. I think it's a matter of how do we grade those kinds of new development. And I don't think for a minute that we can solve everything in one way. Everything needs to be solved in a myriad of ways. But I think that these towns are a really important part of how we solve all these problems that are there because they can at, at least mop up and contain quite large numbers of people. And our development plans are all about that. How do we accommodate new groups of people? So I think, yes, certainly plans need to, need to change. I think the pandemic has made people think a lot harder about uh, suburbanization because we don't need to be too far from things anymore. We don't want to be getting into our cars. We don't want to even depend on public transport anymore. We want to be close to things. And the fact that is brilliant about the pandemic is that it has made us realize that we can all be quite self-contained. We can, we can shop in the way that our grandmothers used to, which is to ring up the store and to say, I need these following things in a modern way on the internet, of course. But we can do that and it can be delivered. And you don't have to do all that thing of driving 10 miles to a big shop and wasting a lot of time wandering around it. So I think there are things about local that will help us solve global if we can, if we can really look at those lessons very hard. And um, it's not about saying that we can suddenly get, uh, you know, 
forget that supermarkets exist. They won't, and neither will hypermarkets. They'll always be there, and they will be on the edges of towns, and we have to make them as decent places as we can, as, uh, as far as we possibly can. But I think what's, what has sucked the life out of a lot of these towns in the past has been that kind of constant drain of all the economy out of them. And what can happen now is by people living in them, they can bring that money and that underpinning of the economy back into them. And uh, I think that's maybe possibly an answer to that. Yeah, I, I, that really resonates with me, the idea that we're, we're back to quite small scale deliveries, as well as, you know, what we used to call going to town to get the message uh, down the country, which is, is kind of back in vogue. I want to end on a slightly uh, mischievous question that Mary Boissel has, has, has posed, which is, is she's talking about how space is interesting and how in Italian architecture, you know, very often your eye is guided to a a beautiful view and it's funny because it reminds me of something in approximate formality which is this idea that you know the classic hilltop village in in italian town planning and so on how we don't really have that but we have other things so what she's really asking is where is the beauty in some sense in, in the irish town and it is it kind of it speaks to this kind of almost post-colonial rejection that we have the sense of towns not really being Irish. So I, I wonder, Valerie, if you have a comment, having written an entire book about them, about where we, we should find beauty in them. I'm going to go back to Helen's comment about container, because um, that sense, I, I mean, you, you can look at a lot of Italian towns and what's brilliant about them is that sense of containment. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, fantastic places like Mantua or, you know, Vigevano or places like that, where you've just got a really clear sense of, of what the surroundings are. And I would say to the questioner that there is a huge amount of that here and we just need to have eyes to look at it. Um, what you will find as you go around a lot of towns at the moment is that the middle of them is kind of taken up with a lot of cars and maybe somebody has done a bit of tidying up of that, but they, they haven't really addressed the thing of how do we make those walls come alive again? It's a bit like being in the theatre and saying, what makes a theatre? It's, it's not just about the people on the stage, it's about the audience as well. And in a way, um, I, I, was, I remember writing a thing about Port Leash where uh, I'm talking about the map, the, the, the kind of the seven, uh, 1675 or 78 map of, of Port Arlington, sorry, not Port Leash, where there's a kind of a very simple sketch on the ground of, of what the new town will be. And you get the sense that it's about people coming in from the dusty plains of, of, of Queen's County and sitting in the middle of something and being able to look at each other and say, we are an audience here, we are a community and we can see each other across the square and we know what we're looking at. Um, I, I will say you just need to travel a little bit and you will see the most beautiful Irish towns all over the place. And I'm not gonna start uh, going into names because there's too many of them. Um, there's a lot of them in this book actually, um, but they're, they're things that sometimes are quite astonishingly simple beauty. Um, you know, of, of just a simple little row of houses in, in making a space between something like Castletown. I, sh I shouldn't say anything now because I'm not going to, I'm going to annoy people that I don't mention their towns. But, you know, towns just make spaces for people to be in. You've got to enliven the walls of those towns so that people feel when they're visiting them that there's people to speak to in a metaphorical sense in there. In other words, there's an audience to there moving into the middle of the piazza. And I would say that's um, that's an important aspect of towns, that they're about viewing and being viewed. They're about the promenade of life and the fantastic backdrop of, of things that we see in all Italian films, like, um, like Fellini's films or Antonioni's films, where you get that sense that the town is the cockpit where everything happens. Beautiful note to end on. So um, it, it's going to be my job to draw this to, to a close in just a moment. But before doing so, uh, I'm going to just call on you because everybody who's ever published a book realizes that there's a list as long as your arm of people that you would want to want yeah. to thank. So Valerie, you might want to do that now before I close the event uh, in, in, in a minute. Well, look, that's that's really kind of you here. And thank you. I, I There are so many people that I have thanked in, in the acknowledgements to the book, which are people who helped with the research, people who guided me when I was looking, trying to trying to find a way to do this. Um, and I, I, I won't mention those, but I will just quickly mention people who generously gave us some financial assistance to actually get the book published. Um, some design team colleagues of ours, Atkins, IN2, Lafferty Project Management, Linesight, Brendan Merrion Partners, O'Connor Sutton Cronin, 
Rogerson Redden and J.B. Tierney. That's a small bunch of people, but they, their help and their foresight, I, I deeply thank them for that because, you know, you can write things forever, but unless, unless you have that little push to kind of get it over the hill, it can be it can be hard. And, and their interest and even romantic attachment to these small towns that many of us grew up in, I think is, is, um, is, a, great, is a great encouragement to me. And I also want to thank the team in the hub led by Eve Patton and yourself, Kieran, who've really generously hosted us all this evening. Thank you so much, Valerie. And um, so it just falls to me to, to thank both our live audience for their brilliant questions and for joining us tonight. I want to thank our brilliant Hub Events team who operate behind the scenes. So that's uh, Francesca, Aoife and Emily. I want to applaud all three of our uh, speakers tonight for giving us a, a preview of a book that I believe everybody should immediately go and order. It's designed by Unthink. It's published in Dublin by St Anne Press and it's widely available from now on at a very reasonable price. Uh, almost a, a scandalously low price of 35 euro given the, the production values. Um, listening to Valerie speak tonight, you, you, you is a bargain, it genuinely is. Um, listening to Valerie speak, you all, she may have dictated it, but I can promise you, and this is my note to finish, it is very close to poetry. It's an amazing book. I encourage you all to go out and read it. So thank you, Valerie. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Professor Linda Doyle. Thank you, the everybody. The is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years. <laughs>